Book Four, Chapter Seven of the Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book Four, Professor and Prophet, eighteen seventy to nineteen hundred. Chapter Seven, Fours Resumed, eighteen eighty to eighteen eighty one. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith Retirement at Brantwood was only partial. Ruskin's habits of life made it impossible for him to be idle, much as he acknowledged the need of a thorough rest. He could not be wholly ignorant of the world outside Coniston, though sometimes for weeks together he tried to ignore it and refused to read a newspaper. The time when General Gordon went out to Khartoum was one of these periods of abstraction, devoted to medieval study. Somebody talked one morning at breakfast about the Sudan. And who is the Sudan, he earnestly inquired, connecting the name, as it seemed, with the Soldan of Babylon in crusading romance. Don't you know, he wrote to a friend, January the 8th, 1880, that I am entirely with you in this Irish misery, and have been these thirty years. Only one can't speak plain without distinctly becoming a leader of revolution. I know that revolution must come in all the world, but I can't act with Danton or Robespierre, nor with the modern French Republican or Italian one. I could with you and your Irish, but you are only at the beginning of the end. I have spoken, and plainly too, for all who have ears and hear. The author of Fours had tried to show that the nineteenth-century commercialist spirit was not new, that the tyranny of capital was the old sin of usury over again and he asked why preachers of religion did not denounce it, why, for example, the Bishop of Manchester did not, on simply religious grounds, oppose the teaching of the Manchester School, who were the chief supporters of the commercialist economy. Not until the end of 1879 had Dr. Fraser been aware of the challenge, but at length he wrote, justifying his attitude. The popular and able bishop had much to say on the expediency of the commercial system and the error of taking the Bible literally but he seemed unaware of the revolution in economical thought which unto this last and fours had been pioneering. I am not gone to Venice yet, wrote Ruskin to Miss Beaver, but thinking of it hourly. I am very nearly done with toasting my bishop. He just wants another turn or two and then a little butter. The toasting and the buttering appeared in the Contemporary Review for February 1880, and this incident led him to feel that the commission of fours was not finished. If bishops were still unenlightened, there was yet work to do. He gave up Venice and resumed his crusade. Brantwood life was occasionally interrupted by short excursions to London or elsewhere. In the autumn he had heard Professor Huxley on the evolution of reptiles, and this suggested another treatment of the subject from his own artistic and ethical point of view in a lecture oddly called A Caution to Snakes, given at the London Institution, March the 17th, 1880, repeated March the 23rd, and printed in Deucalion. He was not merely an amateur zoologist and FZS, but a devoted lover and keen observer of animals. It would take long to tell the story of all his dogs, from the Spaniel Dash commemorated in his earliest poems, and Wissy, whose sagacity is related in Preterita, down through the long line of bulldogs. St. Bernard's and Collie's to Bramble, the reigning favourite, and all the cats who made his study their home or were flirted with abroad. 
Thomas Beaver from Bolton Abbey, January the 24th, 1875, he describes the wharf in flood and then continues, I came home to the hotel to quiet tea and a black kitten called Sweep, who lapped half my cream jugful and yet I had plenty, sitting on my shoulder. Grip, the pet rook at Denmark Hill, is mentioned in My First Editor as celebrated in verse by Mr. W. H. Harrison. Ruskin had not Thoreau's intimate acquaintance with the details of wildlife, but his attitude towards animals and plants was the same. Hating the science that murders to dissect, resigning his professorship at Oxford finally because vivisection was introduced into the university, and supporting the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals with all his heart. But, as he said at the annual meeting in 1877, he objected to the sentimental fiction and exaggerated statements which some of its members circulated. They had endeavoured to prevent cruelty to animals, he said, but they had not enough endeavoured to promote affection for animals. He trusted to the pets of children for their education, just as much as to their tutors. It was to carry out this idea, to anticipate a little, that he founded the Society of Friends of Living Creatures, which he addressed May the 23rd, 1885, at the club Bedford Park, in his capacity of, not president, but papa. The members, boys and girls from seven to fifteen, promised not to kill nor hurt any animal for sport, nor tease creatures, but to make friends of their pets and watch their habits and collect facts about natural history. I remember on one of the rambles at Coniston, in the early days, how we found a wounded buzzard, one of the few creatures of the eagle kind that our English mountains still breed. The rest of us were not very ready to go near the beak and talons of the fierce-looking, and as we supposed, desperate bird. Ruskin quietly took it up in his arms, felt it over to find the hurt, and carried it, quite unresistingly, out of the way of dogs and passers-by, to a place where it might die in solitude or recover in safety. He often told his Oxford hearers that he would rather they learn to love birds than to shoot them, and his wood and moor were harbours of refuge for hunted game or vermin, and his windows the rendezvous of the little birds. He had not been abroad since the spring of 1877, and in August 1880 felt able to travel again. He went for a tour among the northern French cathedrals, staying at old haunts, Abbeville, Amiens, Beauvais, Chartres, Rouen, and then returned with Mr. A. Seven and Mr. Brabazon to Amiens, where he spent the greater part of October. He was writing a new book, the Bible of Amiens, which was to be to the seven lamps what St. Mark's rest was to Stones of Venice. Before he returned, the secretary of the Chesterfield Art School had written to ask him to address the students. Mr. Ruskin, travelling without a secretary, and in the flush of new work and thronging ideas, put the letter aside. He carried his letters about in bundles in his portmanteau, as he said in his apology, and looked at them as Ulysses at the bags of Aeolus. Some wag had the impudence to forge a reply, which was actually read at the meeting in spite of its obvious fictitious style and statements. Harleston, London, Friday. My dear sir, your letter reaches me here. Have just returned, commercial English, not Ruskin, from Venice, where he had meant to go, but did not go, where I have ruminated in the pasturages of the home of art, the loveliest and holiest of lovely and holy cities, where the very stones cry out, eloquent in the elegances of iambics, and so forth. However, it deceived the newspapers, and there was a fine storm which Mr. Ruskin rather enjoyed, for though the forgery was clumsy enough, 
it embodied some apt plagiarism from a letter to the Mansfield Art School on a similar occasion. Not long before, a forgery of a more serious kind had been committed by one of the people connected with St George's Guild, who had put Mr Ruskin's name to checks. The bank authorities were long in tracing the crime. They even sent a detective to Brantwood to watch one of his assistants, who never knew, nor will ever know, that he was honoured with such attentions. And none of his friends for a moment believed him guilty. He had sometimes imitated Mr Ruskin's hand, a dangerous jest. The real culprit was discovered at last, and Mr Ruskin had to go to London as a witness for the prosecution. Being in very weak health, the Times report said, April 1st, 1879, he was allowed to give evidence from the bench. He had told the Sheffield Communists that he thought so strongly on the subject of the repression of crime that he dare not give expression to his ideas for fear of being charged with cruelty. But no sooner was the prisoner released than he gave the help needed to start him again in a better career. Though he did not feel able to lecture to strangers at Chesterfield, he visited old friends at Eton on November the 6th, 1880, to give an address on Amiens. For once he forgot his manuscript, but the lecture was no less brilliant and interesting. It was practically the first chapter of his new work, The Bible of Amiens, itself intended as the first volume of Our Fathers Have Told Us, sketches of the history of Christendom for boys and girls who have been held at its fronts. The distinctly religious tone of the work was noticed as marking, if not a change, a strong development of a tendency which had been strengthening for some time past. Early in 1879, the Reverend F. A. Mailson, vicar of Broughton near Coniston, had asked him to write, for the Furness Clerical Society's meetings, a series of letters on the Lord's Prayer. In them he dwelt upon the need of living faith in the fatherhood of God and childlike obedience to the commands of old-fashioned religion and morality. He criticised the English liturgy as compared with medieval forms of prayer and pressed upon his hearers the strongest warnings against evasion or explaining away of stern duties and simple faiths. He concluded, No man more than I has ever loved the place where God's honour dwells, or yielded truer allegiance to the teaching of his evident servants. No man at this time grieves more for the damage of the church which supposes him her enemy, while she whispers procrastinating packs of abiscum in answer to the spurious kiss of those who would fain toll curfew over the last fires of English faith, and watch the sparrows find nest where she may lay her young around the altars of the Lord. But if the Anglican Church refused him, the Roman Church was eager to claim him. His interest in medievalism seemed to point him out as ripe for conversion. Cardinal Manning, an old acquaintance, showed him special attention and invited him to charming tete-a-tete luncheons. It was commonly reported that he had gone over, or was going. But two letters, of a later date, show that he was not to be caught. To a Glasgow correspondent, he wrote in 1887, I shall be entirely grateful to you if you will take the trouble to contradict any news gossip of this kind, which may be disturbing the minds of any of my Scottish friends. I was, am, and can be only a Christian Catholic in the wide and eternal sense. I have been that these five and twenty years at least. Heaven keep me from being less as I grow older. But I am no more likely to become a Roman Catholic than a Quaker, Evangelical or Turk. To another, next year, he wrote, I fear you have scarcely read enough of fours to know the breadth of my own creed or communion. 
I gladly take the bread, water, wine, or meat of the Lord's Supper with members of my own family or nation who obey him, and should be equally sure it was his giving, if I were myself worthy to receive it, whether the intermediate mortal hand were the Pope's, the Queen's, or a hedge-side gypsy's. At Coniston he was on friendly terms with Father Gibson, the Roman Catholic priest, and gave a window to the chapel, which several of the Brantwood household attended. But though he did not go to church, he contributed largely to the increase of the poorly endowed curacy and to the charities of the parish. The religious society of the neighbourhood was hardly of a kind to attract him, unless among the religious society should be included the Thwaite, where lived the survivors of a family long settled at Coniston, Miss Mary Beaver, scientific and political, and Miss Susanna, who won Mr. Ruskin's admiration and affection by an interest akin to his own in nature and in poetry, and by her love for animals and bright, unfailing wit. Both ladies were examples of sincerely religious life, at once sources and lodestones of all good to the village, as he wrote in the preface to Hortus Inclusus, the collection of his letters to them since first acquaintance in the autumn of 1873. The elder Miss Beaver died at an advanced age on the last day of 1883. Miss Susanna survived until October the 29th, 1893. In children, he took a warm and openly expressed interest. He used to visit the school often and delighted to give them a treat. On January the 13th, 1881, he gave a dinner to 315 Coniston youngsters, and the tone of his address to his young guests is noteworthy as taken in connection with the drift of his religious tendency during this period. He dwelt on a verse of the Sunday school hymn they had been singing. Jesu here from sin deliver. That is what we want, he said, to be delivered from our sins. We must look to the Saviour to deliver us from our sin. It is right we should be punished for the sins which we have done. But God loves us and wishes to be kind to us and to help us that we may not willfully sin. At this time he used to take the family prayers himself at Brantwood, preparing careful notes for a Bible reading, which sometimes indeed lasted longer than was convenient to the household, and writing collects for the occasion, still existing in manuscript and deeply interesting as the prayers of a man who had passed through so many wildernesses of thought and doubt, and had returned at last, not to the fold of the church, but to the footstool of the Father. End of Book 4, Chapter 7 Recording by Graham Arrowsmith.